to conclude our study of how we got the Bible, and as always, a little bit of review to get us going. We are in the fourth section of this study where we're focused on the transmission of the text of Scripture, how we received God's Word, or excuse me, I said transmission, I meant translation, how God's Word has been translated from the original languages into the English language. We spent a good bit of time on this last week. I did a little history overview of the New Testament, I mean, I'm sorry, of the English uh, Bible, particularly of the New Testament translation of the English Bible. And we looked at at, um, the English uh, translations from the earliest ones up to the King James Bible. And we'll pick up there in just a moment. I read this quote to you last week, but I wanted to uh, put it up here and read it again because I think it's important to frame our understanding of translation. This comes from a, a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And this is what it says. The very fact that you are reading God's Word in translation means that you are already involved in interpretation. And this is so whether one likes it or not. But to read in translation is not a bad thing. It is simply inevitable. What this does mean, however, is that in a certain sense, the person who reads the Bible only in English is at the mercy of the translator or translators. And translators have often had to make choices as to what, in fact, the original Hebrew or Greek was really intending to say. In other words, as you pick up an English translation of the Bible you are uh, picking up a a text that has had some interpretation happening. We're going to talk more about how translators determine how to translate, but you need to understand that if you're not looking, if you're not capable of reading the original Greek and Hebrew, then you're looking at a text that has already gone through at least one one, uh, phase of interpretation to some degree, because you come across Greek words that can have multiple meanings. And guess what? The translator has to decide which meaning is intended in that particular context. One Greek word, one Greek preposition can have 10 different interpretations to it, how it's used. We have the same thing happen in English. So you need to understand that as we enter into, enter into this uh, study of English translation. And I kind of want to give you an example of this. Um, It's a very crude example, but what I'm going to do here on the screen in white is the copy, I I have copied and pasted the Greek of John chapter 3 and verse 16, probably the most familiar New Testament passage. In the yellow, what I have done, uh, there are are bars in the yellow to signify new words, and for every word that appears in Greek in the white, I have offered the standard translation of that word in the order that they appear in Greek. Now, what you need to know is that that's not necessarily with each of those words the only way that word could be translated. That's just, like I said, the standard translation of that word. And I have them in the order they appear in Greek. And the one, this is very crude. I did not go into the... um, nuances of verb endings. I did not go into the nuances of how prepositions work with, with nouns and things like that. I simply offered a straightforward, crude interpretation of each individual Greek word. And you'll notice as you read the yellow, it's not a smooth reading. As you read the yellow, there are, there are issues with syntax. 
as you read the yellow, there are at times uh, words missing that would, make, that would help that sentence make sense in English. The reason I have done this is to show you that when a translator looks at the Greek, it's not completely laid out a, a perfect Greek-to-English ratio, if you will. For instance, in the very top line, so for loved the God. That's not how uh, the sentence reads in English, because we've got to switch some things around in order for us to make sense of that sentence, and in order for our, um, our use of subjects and predicates and, and, and the way English syntax operates, we've got to shift some things around for that to make sense to us. And, and you'll notice, so for loved the God, there's a preposition involved. We don't use a preposition before the word for God. And, and, and so that, that would not be necessary in English. It's going to get left out. So you have things like that occurring that the translator has to take in consideration as they're translating from Greek into English. So like I said, this is a very extraordinarily crude example of how, of how Greek and English relate to each other. There's a lot that I'm le leaving out as far as how words uh, uh, work with one another in the context of a Greek sentence. But this is to show you that the translators have to do some reworking of word order, some consideration of, of different interpretations of each word when there are multiple interpretations available, that sort of thing. So th this is probably the easiest verse for me to be able to show you some of how this works. Now with that being said, our goal tonight, which we started last week, is to talk about what you need to consider when you're choosing an English translation. And the first thing we talked about last week was who is or who are the translators. And, and we mentioned that you had some translations are going to be translated by a committee. There's going to be multiple people involved in the translation of that text. There are some translations that involve a single individual doing the entire translation. Now, single individual translations don't happen much anymore. That was uh, more frequently done uh, years ago prior to the King James. And when somebody does engage in a single-person translation nowadays, it's usually in the context of a paraphrase, which we'll be talking about in just a moment. But a committee of translators is preferred over a single translator because the committee will hold one another accountable to the standard of accurate translation, whereas an individual can project whatever he wants to onto the text. So uh, when you're choosing a translation, examine its preface. Go online and read the, uh, the history of it. Most of the modern translations have a website for that translation. The, the New King James Version, the New American Standard, the New International, the English Standard, they all have a website dedicated to information about their translation. You can, on most of those websites, discover who the translators are. They will provide a list of the different scholars involved in the translation of their text. Um, so you want to uh, consider a translation that has a committee involved rather than an individual. You also want to uncover whether or not that translation is associated with a particular denomination. So, for instance, the King James Version. Actually, if you look at the scholars, we'll talk about it again in a moment, 48 different scholars involved in the translation of the King James Version, they're all associated with the Anglican Church, or the Church of England in some fashion. Um, now, there are different uh, groups within the 
Church of England at that time, including the Puritans and things like that. But all of these men were associated, primarily associated with the Church of England in some fashion. Nowadays, you do have some other translations. Uh, you come across a few that we aren't very familiar with. Uh, the New Jerusalem Bible or the New American Bible, those are Catholic editions. Now, a Catholic uh, translation is going to stand out because it's going to have books in there that you've never seen before, particularly between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, called the Deuterocanon. But then you also have like the Holman Christian Standard Bible, or, or it's now known as the Christian Standard Bible. It, it, it was produced by the Southern Baptist Convention. And though it may not have uh, many issues um, when you read through it, it's worth knowing because there can be doctrinal bend, a doctrinal bent to certain passages based on that denomination's uh, stance on Scripture. So it's worth knowing if a, denom- if a translation is associated with a particular denomination, and a translation not associated with a particular denomination is preferred because it is less likely to promote a particular teaching. Um, so you need to know who is and who are the translators. And you can find that out by either reading the preface or going to the translation's website. You also need to consider what the translation's source material is. You may, we talked about this last week as well. You may remember we examined textual families when we were talking about manuscripts early in this study. And every uh, translation has a particular uh, textual family that it is basing its translation upon. The vast majority of our translations are based upon what's called the critical text. The critical text is the now widely accepted standardized Greek text based on the best manuscripts of the Greek available to us, uh, which all uh, associate with the Alexandrian family of texts. The Alexandrian textual family is comprised of the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament, and it's the primary basis for our current Greek New Testament, which is known as the Nestle-Auckland 28th edition or the United Bible Society's 5th edition. And translations that are based on the Alexandrian text type, I have New King James up there that is incorrect. I forgot to remove that. But your English Standard Version, your New American Standard Version, your New International Version, those are based on the Alexandrian textual family. Uh, the, other, the second textual family that does not affect any of our English translations is the Western text type. This one is, asso- is, more, is associated with Latin uh, translations, and so this is not one you have to really worry about. The third textual family is the Byzantine family. This is the textual family that appears in the majority of, of manuscript, Greek manuscripts, um, but it is not in the oldest Greek manuscripts. Most of the Greek manuscripts that have this Byzantine family are from the 9th century and later. There's very few earlier than the 9th century. So this is called the majority text, and it was the textual basis for the King James Version, and as we'll talk about in a minute, also the New King James Version. And it is a, um, because it's not as old as the Alexandrian family, it's not found in manuscripts as old as the Alexandrian family. It's considered a lesser quality textual family. And so the preference would be to uh, use a translation that, ha- that, that is uh, based on the Alexandrian textual family. That would be the preference, uh, or the best practice, I should say, um, be- because those are the oldest manuscripts. Now, to be fair, I've mentioned the King James Version used the majority text. In fairness to the King James Version, that's all they had. 
because the, uh, uh, the Alexandrian manuscripts weren't discovered till after the King James was in initially published. So I got to give some fairness to the King James in that regard. They were using the best available at that time. Now, we talk about uh, translation source material. Now here's the big one. We haven't gotten to this one yet. The translation's philosophy. This might be the most important category that we'll talk about up here. So what do we mean by a translation philosophy? Every English translation decides how it's going to translate from Greek to English. Starting with this possibility. The first possibility is what's called formal equivalence. That means, to the best of its ability, the translation is going to be a word-for-word -word translation. For, for every word you find in Greek, they're going to try to provide an, the equivalent word in English. The goal of a, a formal equivalence translation is to be as accurate to the original Greek in its choice of words and, and phrases and so on. Uh, as you saw with that John 3.16 passage that I put up there, a, a, a literal word equals word is not always going to be the case because sometimes you have to plug in a couple of English words for it to make sense in English. Sometimes um, an article or something like that might be eliminated because it doesn't transfer into English. So word for word just means it says as equivalent to the original Greek as possible, even maintaining the Greek syntax as much as possible. So that would be a for that's what formal equivalence is. And it's a philosophy of translation that attempts to translate exactly what is said in the order that it is said in the original language. And that results in the reader being responsible for all interpretation. The word-for-word -word philosophy is trying to make it where it's your job to interpret what's being said based on the translations of, that you have available. And uh, translations that employ formal equivalents are the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard, the English Standard, and some others, but those are the, the major ones. A second category of philosophy takes a step further from formal equivalents, and it's called dynamic equivalence. And dynamic equivalence is the idea of we're going we're gonna to translate thought for thought. We're not going to be precise word for word. Our goal is to capture the thought of this statement and put that thought into English to the best of our ability. What that means is there's going to be a lot of word for word in a dynamic equivalence, but when there are idioms and syntax and language in the original languages that doesn't make sense in English, they're going to find the closest, equal, the closest English equivalent. And so there's going to be a little more favor given to the English language than the Greek language to some degree in a thought-for-thought -thought translation. So the philosophy of the dynamic equivalence translation is that it attempts to translate the meaning of the original language to the original audience, which results in some interpretation being resolved for the reader. In a dynamic equivalent translation, what ends up happening is they do some interpreting on the front end to make it easier for you to read on the back end. That's what, what it boils down to. And some translations that employ dynamic equivalents are the New International Version, the New Living Translation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and I did not put that one up there, but those are the translations that tend to use dynamic equivalents. Now, a lot of people associate dynamic equivalents with our third category, but they are different. 
Our third category is called functional equivalence. In functional equivalence, this tra- those tra- these do not care, these English Bibles do not care about, the consist- about maintaining the structure or the, a- the accuracy of words from the Greek or Hebrew. The goal of a, a functional equivalence Bible is to just make it make sense in English. And so the philosophy of translation for functional equivalence is an attempt to communicate the intent of a passage in a way that is understandable to the reader. And what ends up happening in a functional equivalent Bible is that all the interpretation is done by the translator. They're not really leaving any interpretation for you to do. They're doing all of it. And so what a functional equivalent Bible really is, is a paraphrase. It's somebody's interpretation of the original languages then put on paper for you to read. And the Bibles that would fall in the category of a functional equivalent Bible are the Message, the Living Bible, and uh, a common English version or contemporary English version. I can't remember my acronyms right now. But the Message is the most well-known of these Bibles. Now let me help show you the difference between these three by using this passage from Philippians chapter 2. It's probably a passage you're familiar with. Using Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. This is a word-for-word translation of Philippians chapter 2. This is the formal equivalence. The New American Standard, as we'll talk about in a minute, is one of the most, uh, is is considered the most literal translation of the Greek New Testament in particular, or, or of the Bible. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, coming from the New American Standard, which is a formal equivalent translation, meaning it's a word-for-word translation, says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross." Now, you understand that passage for the most part. It's not, it doesn't read really, it's not as fluid of a reading as we might like in English. There there are some uh, phrases that we might have to uh, work with to completely understand, but you get the big picture here of what this passage is saying. Now, let's look at a thought-for-thought translation. This is from the New International Version, and notice it's going to have some differences. It's going to try to smooth out the reading. It's going to try to explain some of the phrases that might be harder to to understand. Here's the New International Version, a thought-for-thought or dynamic equivalent translation. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you were to compare these two, you'll find several places where they're similar, but you'll also find several places where they differ. A lot of people think that a dynamic equivalent or thought-for-thought translation is a paraphrase. It's really not, because let me show you a paraphrase now. This is the message on Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. 
When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death that is at, a crucifixion. There are some points in the reading of the message there that sound familiar to the previous two passages, but it is written very differently. In fact, if you open the message, it doesn't use chapter and verses because for it to paraphrase texts It can't neatly and tightly put that text in the parameters of chapter and verses. And so a paraphrase is a lot more liberal than a dynamic equivalence. And a dynamic equivalence or thought for thought is more liberal than a formal equivalence or a word for word. And this diagram here shows um, basically how most translations fall on a a spectrum of word-for-word to paraphrase. And what you'll notice if you go over there to the word-for-word side is that the majority of the translations that you hear used here fall under word-for-word. The only translation that ever gets used here that fits more in the thought-for-thought category is the New International Version. But then you go towards paraphrases, and I know this is hard to see because of the font. I didn't make this diagram. I downloaded it, so I can't speak to the quality. But as you move to the right, we don't utilize really any of the translations in that paraphrase side. We stay on the left side with word for word. And there's reason for that. Our objective is for the understanding of Scripture to be in your hands, not in the hands of a translator. So that, this, this image gives a good idea of where these kind of fall. What I want to do now, oh, I still, I forgot. Let me summarize then what all this means. A word-for-word translation is the most accurate rendering of the original languages. A thought-for-thought translation is the most readable. And a paraphrase is the most dangerous. Because the translator assumes in a paraphrase, the translator assumes the task of interpreting for the reader. So I recommend, my personal recommendation is to avoid paraphrases at all costs. Using thought-for-thought translations sparingly and consulting a word-for-word translation primarily. And I'm going to elaborate on that more as we move forward in just a moment. There is one fourth category of consideration when choosing a translation and that is reading level. We don't usually think about this one, largely because we're a much more literate society than we used to be. But every English translation receives a reading level. And so pictured on this screen is a breakdown of the primary translation's reading levels. Some of it's going to be hard to see. Again, this is not one diagram that I particularly made. On the far right... In the grade 12 reading level is the King James Version, the American Standard Version, the original American Standard Version, and the Revised Standard Version. Coming, stepping a grade down to a grade 11, um, the New King James Version and the New American Standard Version and the New Revised Standard Version. A 10th grade level is assigned to the English Standard Version, and then um, 7th through 8th grade level is assigned to the New International Version, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and the Living Bible. 
grade de- step down to uh, seventh grade level, you have, um, uh, I can't remember what those initials stand for, but they're not among the ones we're going to be talking about today. Get to the sixth grade level, you have the New Living Translation. Fifth grade level, God's Word uh, Translation. Grades four and five, the message. In grade three, you get down to what are some uh, translations that are designed for children. For instance, the New International Reader's Version or the New Century Version. Actually, the New Century Version was originally designed for a deaf audience to put it into words that that they can sign. Um, So you have uh, a a range from uh, 12th grade through 3rd grade reading levels of the English Bible. And you'll notice that the more wor- that word-for-word translations always end up in the 10th grade or higher level. Well, that's be- because there are some pretty significant words in Scripture. Uh, I mean, a third grader is not going to be able to understand and possibly not even read the word propitiation when they come across it. So uh, a, a lower reading level is going to go for, be more of a paraphrase or more of a thought-for-thought translation in order to accommodate that reading level. But your reading level directly is related to your translation philosophy. So that's something worth considering as well. Um, with that being said, what I want to do now is break down the top eight English translations. And when I say top eight, I've taken these from the list of the ten most um, purchased English translations over the past ten years. I said 10, we're only going to talk about 8. That's because one of the 10 is the Spanish Bible. The other is the New International Reader's Version, which is for children. It's a children's Bible. So I'm going to focus on the 8 that adults, that English-speaking adults are purchasing. The number one, uh, but I'm not going to do these in the order of, um, uh, I'm not going to do it in order of which one's purchased the most. I'm going to do it in order of when they came out, when they were published, or when they were developed, I should say. The first being the King James. We've talked about this one at length already, but let me do a little overview of the King James based on the uh, factors that we have just talked about for the past bit. The King James originated as a revision of the Bishop's Bible. That was one of the older English translations that was used in the uh, Church of England. And it was so the King James was originally conceived as an update to the. Um, Bishop's Bible. It was published in 1611 at the behest of um, Puritans in the Church of England. They wanted a new translation. They beseeched such a... Man, I'm even talking in King James right now. They, they, they sought the approval of the king, to, uh, who was also the head of the church, essentially, to uh, bring about this translation in 1611. They produced the King James Version. Uh, you'll notice that there were revisions of it, updates to its language and such. In fact, um, the King James Version you have is is nearly identical to the 1769 revision uh, that was produced by Dr. Benjamin Blaney of Oxford University. Your current King James does not look that much like the 1611 edition. It looks like the 1769 edition. There were 48 choice Greek and Hebrew scholars that were selected to translate the King James Version. They were put in six working companies. 
uh, two of them were at Westminster, two of the companies were at Oxford, two of the companies at Cambridge, and each company was assigned certain books of the Bible to translate. And once they translated their section of the Bible, they then sent their translation to the other companies. And those companies would offer suggestions, would approve or disapprove of their translation, and, and thereby they became a translation by committee, one of, the, one of, if not the very first, translation by committee. And so through that process, they reviewed each other and produced their translation. Now, technically, all the contributors to the King James Version would fall under the rubric of the Church of England. Um, it was not their intent to produce a a doctrinal translation that was good for their congregation and nobody else. It's just that's having broken off from the Catholic Church, they were looking to produce a, a Protestant translation in particular that was inconsistent with, with that was consistent with the other English translations prior to it. Um, the textual basis of the, KJ, the King James Version, as I have said, uh, it, orig it originally was a revision of an earlier English translation, and where they used that as the source, the base text of their English translation, they would consult the original languages for the passages that needed improvement or for the passages that they discovered in the manuscripts weren't correct. And so the King James Version's source material ultimately was the Greek manuscripts of the day, which were manuscripts first produced by Erasmus and then by Stephanus and then by uh, Bizet. Now, these Greek manuscripts were all based on the Byzantine text type because that's all they had. And so the, the source material for the King James Version is the lesser quality uh, received text, Textus Receptus, as it was called, um, which was Byzantine textual family because the Alexandrian manuscripts had yet to be discovered. The translation philosophy of the King James is formal equivalence. The goal was to produce a word-for-word -word translation to the best of their ability, and its reading level, as you may know, is, uh, as we've just mentioned, was 12th grade level. Now, uh, on a few of these translations that we're going to talk about today, I'm going to show you some examples of, uh, uh, of good quality and of poor quality. So with the King James Version, take, for instance, the model prayer. Many of us have this memorized, and my guess is that if you have it memorized, you probably have a King James Version memorized. Th our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There is a beauty to that language. Uh, you, you have to think this 17th century English is the, is the English of Shakespeare, and there's beauty to it. And in the model prayer like that, that just sounds respectful, and that just sounds um, reverent. There's something beautiful about it. So you can't fully hate the King James because it's an old language, because there's some beauty to that language. The other, but, but there are some flaws in its translation, particularly flaws connected to the fact that it's from a uh, less quality source material. And so you come across a passage like Acts chapter 12 and verse 4. And you'll notice in the King James, they actually use the word Easter. I don't know how familiar, familiar you are with the term Easter, but it does not come from any Christian circle. It is a pagan word in reference to a pagan holiday that the, uh, the church adopted and attached to the resurrection of Jesus, terminology-wise. Easter was never a term 
that was associated with the resurrection of Jesus. It was an adopted pagan term. And what's interesting is if you look at any other translation of Acts chapter 12 and verse 4, the reference is to Passover. What's fascinating is that the King James Version, every other time in the Greek New Testament that the word Passover appears, they translate it Passover. But in this one instance, in Acts chapter 12 and verse 4, they chose Easter. And scholars have no idea why they did that. That is just an example of kind of an, I don't want to say errant translation, but a, a poor translation choice. There is another example that this is not of poor translation from the King James time period, but I'm showing you this because this shows you that at times the 17th century language can produce a hurdle for us in understanding a passage. In the 1611, this terminology, or in the 1600s, this terminology would not have been a problem. But look at Acts 28, verse 13. And from thence we fetched a compass. Now, if we hear that, we think that means that whoever is being talked about in that passage had to go get a compass. But what the Greek really is referring to is sailing in a circle. That terminology made sense in the 17th century, but if you look at the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, the New King James Version, even the New International Version, the more modern uh, language used helps us understand that it's talking about sailing in a circle or sailing around something. Fetch a compass. With that terminology makes us think something totally different. And so uh, that's just an example of how 17th language doesn't correlate well to modern language sometimes and can present a problem for somebody uh, trying to um, understand the King James Version that, do, that does not understand the 17th century language that's being used. But let's not forget, some of that language is just absolutely beautiful. So King James Version has its limitations because of its source material and its age. But guess what? The King James Version is still the second most purchased English translation today. In 2021, the King James is still the second most purchased uh, English translation in circulation. Now let's turn our attention to the New American Standard Version, or the New American Standard Bible. Uh, the New American Standard Bible is built off of the American Standard Version. The American Standard Version was released in 1901. It was intended to be an Americanized update to the King James Version. The King James Version re received an, a, a complete revision in the 1880s, and it became known as the Revised Version. But it was revised for English in England. By the 1880s, you have a pretty substantial English population in the, in the Americas, and they want a translation that connects with their, their version of English. And so there was a committee from America involved in developing this revised version of the English Bible that was published in England, but it was using idioms and, and, and language of, of British communication, and they really wanted it to be more Americanized. They had to make an agreement with the publishers of the revised version not to publish their Americanized version for a few years. So they had to wait till 1901 till they published an American revision to the King James Version known as the American Standard Version. So in 1901, American Standard Version comes out, and, and uh, at that time, that's it. You've got King James or you've got American Standard Version in the U.S. That's basically uh, the competitors going on. But in the 1950s, uh, a group decided that the American Standard Version really needed some updated language itself. 
a group formed called the Lockman Foundation. They still exist today. They're based out of California. They're a nonprofit, non-denominational ministry that's focused on translation. They now not only emphasize translation in English, but they produce Spanish uh, translations as well. And the Lockman Foundation uh, launched this new translation project in 1959 uh, to update the ASV uh, by incorporating recent discoveries of Heek in Greek, Heek. Hebrew and Greek textual sources, and using more current English. And their uh, project bore out the New American Standard Bible. So the primary objective of the New American Standard Bible was to uh, revive and revise the American Standard Version. Now, they did translate by committee. They involved, let's see here, um, 42, well, the New American Standard Bible, let me first say this, it has received updates. Its first update was in 1977, its second update in 1995, and it just got updated in 2020. It's the, most, it's the uh, uh, major translation with the most recent update to it, the 2020 update. In 1977, when they went back to revise it, they had, they've, on their website, show 42 different scholars who were involved in the translation process uh, of the revision in 1977. Uh, they had 19 translators and four critical consultants for the 1995 update and 12 translators and nine critical consultants for the 2020 update. Um, their source material uh, has always been the current critical text of the New Testament uh, and of the Hebrew Bible as well. Um, so whatever the current... Um, Alexandrian family uh, textual basis is, that's what they have always used. I say current because what was current in 1959 is not the same as what's current in 2020. That's the only reason I use that word. The translation philosophy of the New American Standard is formal equivalence or word for word. In fact, if you go to the Lockman Foundation's website, their stated aim for their translation on the website is to be true to the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and to be grammatically correct. That was That's two of their primary, that's two of their stated goals for their translations. And since the New American Standard's completion uh, of New and Old Testament in 1971, uh, it has been widely embraced as a literal and accurate English translation because it consistently uses the formal equivalence philosophy. It's a word-for-word uh, efforts are considered some of the best uh, in English translation. It does have some rough readings at times, uh, or it has some readings that I think are better than other translations. It has some readings that I think are, are more challenging than others. And I could do this for every English translation, but I'll do it really quick here. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, New American Standard. But encourage one another every day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I've highlighted the, the differences or the primary differences with the New King James. I find the word encourage a better word for me to, uh, to, to wrap my head, head around than exhort. They mean the same thing, but we don't use exhort that much today. We use encourage a lot. And then that phrase um, in the New King James, while it is called today, uh, for some reason the terminology of as, as long as it is still called today resonates with me more personally, not, not necessarily everyone, but for me. I've, I find the New American Standard to be a smoother reading of that passage than the New King James. 
But then I can come into Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, and I find um, an English Standard Version to be a smoother reading than the New American Standard Version. And I could do this with every major English translation, show you where it's smoother in one and less smooth in the other, in my opinion. I don't want to belabor this because there are more important translations to get to as far as um, explaining them in further detail. The next one that came along publication was the New International Version. And as we've noted already, New International is renowned as a thought-for-thought, dynamic equivalent translation. But it was first published in 1979, uh, the entire Bible, that is. The New Testament came out earlier. It was revised in 84, and it was revised again in 2011. It developed in the 1950s. Its roots go back to the 1950s out of the dissatisfaction of some evangelical Christians' feelings towards what was known as the Revised Standard Version at the time. I'm not talking about the Revised Standard Version because it is is not that popular anymore, uh, and it has gone through revisions itself, but the Revised Standard Version was published in 1952, and it was based on the critical text, and it used the American Standard Version as its basis, Uh, but some found it, uh, some evangelical Christians found it not to be a, a, a useful version. And so in 1967, uh, the New York Bible Society, which is now known as the International Bible Society, took on the responsibility for a project to come up with a new translation that evangelical Christians uh, would use and appreciate. And so NIV was then born. In 1996, the NIV produced the New International Reader's Version, which is a third grade level reading edition that is the eighth most purchased English translation today. In 2002, the NIV published the Today's New International Version. They, they really thought they were going to transition to this version, and it became the dominant translation. Uh, and it was touted for being this politically correct translation, in particular when it came to uh, gender-neutral language. But they just stirred up a firestorm when they decided to implement gender-neutral language in the Today's NIV. Um, so instead of a phrase like, Um, sons of God, it would say children of God. Instead of a phrase like a man is justified by faith, it would say a person is justified by faith. And and the controversy was you're not remaining faithful to the original language. And so the the Today's New International Version of 2002 also attempted to eliminate anti-Semitic language from the New Testament. So when you would be in the Gospels and there would be this um, language of the Jews did this or the Jews did that to Jesus, they changed it to the Jewish leaders. They didn't want all Jews to be um, thought poorly of kind of thing, taking out anti-Semitic sounding language. Well, in 2011, the today's New International Version was abandoned. It was discontinued. And that's when they did the update to the regular New International Version, and that's the only one that exists now. The NIV was overseen by a 15-member committee known as the Committee on Bible Translation, financed by the International Bible Society. It ultimately involved over 100 scholars in its translation. The preface proudly states this, The fact that participants from the United States, Great Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand worked together gave the project its international scope. That they were from many denominations, including Anglican, Assemblies of God, Baptist, Brethren, Christian Reformed, Church of Christ, Evangelical Free, Lutheran, Mennonite, Methodist, Nazarene, Presbyterian, Wesleyan, and other churches helped to safeguard the translation from sectarian bias. Yes, they referenced the Church of Christ. 
I did a little research into that uh, as to who they're referring to, and there is one member of this giant 100-member um, committee uh, or, or translation team. There was one member who was a member of the Church of Christ. His name is Jack Lewis. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a professor at the uh, Harding Graduate School of Religion. Jack Lewis was a renowned Old Testament scholar. He was, he was um, utilized sparingly to help contribute to translation in the books of Hosea and Joel. That's it. A couple of Old Testament books that he was contributing to. So when it says that they utilized all these different uh, religious groups, all these different denominations in their translation, it doesn't mean that everyone from every different religious group got to contribute to the entire translation. He was limited to just two books in the Old Testament, and we don't even know how many verses he weighed in on. But that's how they can claim interdenominational cooperation for their translation. Uh, regarding uh, the source material for the NIV, it does use current critical text. Uh, the translation philosophy is the big issue because it changed. It's the first major translation to say, hey, we're going to abandon word for word. We're going to go thought for thought. It's the first one to be so significant um, that it made it a big deal. In fact, I'm not so sure that the dynamics, it seems almost like dynamic equivalent um, that terminology came into existence because of the NIV, because it wasn't quite a paraphrase, but it certainly wasn't formal equivalence. So they had to come up with a, a third category. Um, so the NIV is not word for word. It is a thought for thought translation. Uh, that that means that uh, some of the terminology is is changes um, to accommodate English understanding. Now to give you a couple of passages just to. Note, I do think there are times the NIV really communicates well. Like Hebrews 12, 14. For me, that terminology of make every effort as opposed to strive just connects better. I, I get the idea of making every effort. And, the, and where it says make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy, I understand that concept a lot better than I do. Strive for peace and for the holiness, for the holiness. Strive to be holy, I get that a lot easier. So there are times I think the NIV uh, presents it, presents a much smoother understanding of what the text says without compromising uh, accuracy of translation. But then you can come to a passage like Romans chapter 7, and you'll notice I've highlighted the word sinful nature. The NIV loved that term when it first came out. And it's translating the Greek word sarx, which means flesh. If you look at any other word-for-word -word translation, it's always going to use the word flesh. But NIV inserts this term sinful nature. And when you, when you hear that and come across it in a passage like Romans chapter 7, it, it sounds like I've got this nature about me that's automatically sinful that I can't control, that I can't do anything about. The idea of, it, of, of the word flesh is referring to our weakness, the part of us that gives in to temptation. The sinful nature language falls in line with the teachings of John Calvin that I talked about a couple of weeks ago on Sunday night of this idea of total depravity, that you are born sinful. This is even amplified by Psalm chapter 51, verse 5. If you want to really understand where a translation stands doctrinally, turn to Psalm 50, 51, verse 5, and look at it. It is the most revealing verse of the entire Bible when it comes to doctrine. NIV says, surely I was sinful at birth. 
sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's sinful at birth. Let's go beyond that. Sinful at conception. That's what the NIV just said. New American Standard. Behold, I was brought forth in guilt, and in sin my mother conceived me. When you read the New American Standard Version, who's the sin being placed on? Not on the child, on the mother. There is a difference. Psalm 51 verse 5 in the NIV presents a Calvinistic teaching of total depravity that, that you or a person is born sinful. I think, no, that was the last one. But you'll find this in other translations too. This is not the only translation that has this problem. Uh, New King James Version is an update to the King James Version, obviously, done in 1982 by Thomas. Oh, one other thing about the NIV. The reason NIV is so controversial isn't so much its translation, but its popularity. It is the number one best-selling English translation and has been for like 20 years. It is just that popular. NIV, I'm, I'm berating about it because of translations like this. There is a place, I think, for the NIV. It is in narrative accounts, really... I have never seen the flashing lights in my entire life, and Eric gave them to me tonight. <laughs> um, the NIV is, is useful in narrative reading. It's, it can be useful for um, just understanding what's happening in a story in particular. Uh, right now, at night, we have Micah reading stories from the life of Jesus. We're, we're having her just do a nightly reading where she's reading a narrative event in the life of Jesus. And I have her reading from the NIV because it is a, a lower reading level, it's, more, it's closer to her reading level, and it conveys the story in a, in a way she can understand without compromising from those stories, not compromising doctrine. Do I want her reading Romans chapter 7 from the NIV? No. But I'm, that's not what I'm working on with her right now. So the, I think the NIV has its place to some degree, but it, but it, it can't be relied upon as, as a sole source of doctrine theology and, and uh, God's will, because it does compromise some things. Let me just add that in there. New King James, as I said, is a revision to the King James that was done in 1982 by Thomas Nelson Publishers. They own the rights to it. A team of 130 scholars, quote, from a broad spectrum of Christian, uh, from a broad spectrum of Christian church were involved in it. I have not been able to uh, find a list of who that includes, um, they did, their list is not published anywhere that I can find. The source material for the New King James Version is the one thing that compl compl complicates it. Instead of, like all other modern m translations of the English Bible, it doesn't use the, critical, the current critical text, the Alexandrian family. In keeping with the King James Version, it chooses to stay with the Byzantine family. And so it translates based on the majority text, the majority of translations, uh, or excuse me, the majority of manuscripts, which are Byzantine in nature. And so that is, it's one flaw. Um, now, it does make an improvement over the King James in that it cites where there are textual variants. The King James did not do that. So the New King James does make that improvement, but it still is lacking in the sense of its choice, in my opinion, of its original source material. But it is a strong word-for-word formal equivalent translation that is, uh, that is uh, suitable for study. It is the third most purchased 
no, excuse me, it was the third most purchased English translation in 2011, but since then has dropped to fifth. Um, and while it is an improvement on the King James, as far as its readability and inclusion of textual variants, it's still lacking because of the, in, to its one thing, the inferior Greek text. Uh, next up, I'm trying to speed along because I, I, we only have a few minutes. New Living Translation. Now, this is not one you hear us use. But here's the thing. The New Living Translation is the third most purchased English translation today. It was intend, originally intended to be an update to the Living Bible. The Living Bible was produced in the uh, 50s or 60s, I believe. No, uh, yeah. Nope. It was produced in the 70s. And it was a paraphrase by a man named Kenneth Taylor, who was the founder of Tyndall House Publishing. Tyndall House Publishing is the publishers for the um, New Living Translation. Uh, the New Living Translation, when they went to do this update to the Living Bible, they, they brought together a team of, of nearly 90 leading scholars. There's a list of those you can view on their website. And when they brought that team together, they ended up producing a whole translation. Instead of updating a paraphrase, they made a translation. Now, it is a thought-for-thought thought translation. It is, a, is a, uh, just like the NIV, it, it operates in that same vein of, of doing dynamic equivalence. In fact, they have a term for it, I believe. They, have, they had an... Um, oh, no, I'm thinking of a different one. Anyway, they, they are not a word-for-word -word translation. They are on a sixth-grade reading level, but they, too, have some Calvinistic tendencies... Again, Psalm 55, 51, verse 5, that you can, you can use this verse to check any translation's doctrine. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Uh, it, it's not uh, an exact match to the NIV, but it conveys the same thought. Uh, there's also Romans 7, guess what? Sinful nature. New Living Translation shows that terminology as well. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, if you read this verse, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed Him. There is Calvinistic teaching in that. It's saying that, hey, because God chose you, you have now chosen to obey him. That is unconditional election aspect of Calvinism. So that appears in the New Living Translation. It has risen in popularity, like I said, third most purchased English translation. Um, but it is less accurate than a word-for-word -word translation. And, therefore, and, and, and since it doesn't employ that, it, it, it is uh, not a... In, in my opinion, not one of the, the good translations. Next up, that's our last bell. If you stay with me for just a minute, the message. This is a paraphrase written by a guy named Eugene Peterson uh, in the mid-90s. The message identifies itself as a paraphrase, but then if you go to its website, it also tries to validate itself by saying it's not quite a paraphrase, it's, it, it's more of a thought for thought, and it absolutely is not. Uh, Eugene Peterson himself, when he uh, produced this, he started, he wanted, uh, in a, a book he was writing, he wanted to uh, help his, his church members understand the book of Galatians better. So what he did is he said, I'm just, I'm just going to write my own version. I'm going to look at the, he was a Greek scholar, he said, I'm just going to look at the original language and come up with my own version of how this should sound, produce this paraphrase in a devotional form. Some editor at Nav Press saw it and was like, you know what, we should print a Bible exactly like this. So he contacted Gene Peterson and said, would you write the entire New Testament this way? He did, and that's how the message was formed. Um, so the message was technically written by one man. Here's what's interesting. Their, their website, 
identifies Eugene Peterson as the sole translator of the message. But then he goes on to say that Peterson's work has been thoroughly reviewed by a team of recognized Old and New Testament scholars to ensure that it is accurate and faithful to the original languages. And then it identifies 20 scholars who verified his translation. The source material is never identified. Um, on their website, it simply says that Eugene Peterson worked with the original Hebrew and Greek languages. It never says what textual family or, 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 or what. Never gives you that. The philosophy, as I said, is a paraphrase. And um, what's fascinating to me is that Eugene Peterson was interviewed, and this is on the website for the message. He was interviewed, asked some questions. He was asked the question, what translation do you use? He goes, I use the New Revised Standard Version. And he is quoted as saying the message should the message should only be used uh, as a reading Bible and nothing else. Right there, the guy that wrote it is saying only use this for reading, don't use this for study. I threw this up here, James four verse seven. So uh, so let God work His will in you. Yell a loud no to the devil, and watch him make himself scarce. That's the interpretation of James chapter 4, verse 7 in this paraphrase, which is humorous to me at the very least. So I, I point this out. The message is a paraphrase. There are two others that I was going to talk about, the Christian Standard Bible and the English Standard Version, but our time is gone uh, for now, and if time presents itself at another occasion for me to go over those with you. Um, Christian Standard Bible, just real quick, that is a dynamic equivalence, thought for thought. English Standard is a word for word, uh, and as you can tell, I'm partial to the word for word. Thank you for your time, and let me close out with a quick word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for tonight's study. We're grateful we could have this time to be together. It is our prayer that you be with us through the rest of this week, that we will live according to your will. And Lord, may we, uh, may we grow in our confidence in your word. It is through your Son's name that we pray. Amen.